I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 145. Psalm most important thing that we're going to do today is read God's word. So these next short moments, reading these 21 verses, meant to be a reminder to us, and not just a reminder, but the reality that God has spoken to us in his word. He has spoken to you today through his word. He has spoken perfectly. He has spoken sufficiently. There's no lack in what God's word has for you today. So let us, as we hear God's word, strike down any temptation to think, I don't know that this is going to have anything to do with what my life is about right now. This has everything to do with what your life is about. There is no greater message. There is no greater source of truth than God's word. There's no greater message that you will hear from outside of its covers. So hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. The glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever. Lord, in this psalm, we hear 
David interjecting between truths of your great character and your great work with acclamations that he would join in to who you are and what you are doing. So Lord, let us do the very same. May our hearts, as John Wesley described his own at the point of his conversion, may our hearts be strangely warmed as we hear your word and as you apply the power and truth of it to our very lives, that our earthly perspectives would be belittled by a true view of who you are, of your great majesty and the great works that you've done. Make us a generation that proclaims to another, commending you and bringing praise to your name. Help us now. Give us your spirit. Glorify Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, did you hear the interjections of David in this psalm? Did you hear as he writes this, his very last psalm in the whole Psalter, as he writes this glorious poem of the greatness of God and how he, it seems he cannot help but stop here and there and say, I will extol you, Lord. Over and over, he's interrupting himself as though what he is doing in that very moment is not quite enough. I mean, he's writing this psalm, right? He's saying all these things are true about God, but for some reason, he feels so compelled that he just has to say it again. He has to say, this is what I'm doing right now. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. With critical eyes, we look at him and say, David, we get it. You're doing it right now. You don't have to keep interrupting. But he saw fit to interrupt himself multiple times. And so the Lord in his sovereign, sustaining, uh, wonderful way of working out his own plan, he has maintained this psalm as it is, the words of a man inspired by the God who created him. Today we continue our series, Because He Died. The very crux, if you will, of our faith the death of Christ, the most important act in all of history, where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who having become fully human while maintaining his divinity, his godness, becomes a substitute on behalf of his people. This is what we consider during Lent, but it is what we are meant to consider all year round, right? To consider the lengths that he went to to make us his own. And today in our series, we continue having dealt with our sin, having considered how we are called to continually deal with our sin. I don't ever want to just leave sin in the past tense because we all know it's at the door knocking, is it not? Its desire is to consume us, but we must overcome it. And Christ has shown us how to do that. He's given us his spirit so that we might face conviction, realizing the truth of it, having our eyes open to what our sin truly is, confess, agree with God that our sin is what it really is, and conquer our sin by the Spirit whom he's given us to put to death the deeds of the body, our old ways of living, our old ways of thinking, our old ways of speaking, to be put away with, never to be seen again. One day, one day, we will never see or experience sin. Is that a hope in your heart? Do you recognize the weightiness of sin in the world? And do you see even 
even that all that around you doesn't compare to the weight of what you experience in your own heart regarding your own sin? You know what Paul called himself in regards to his own sin? The chief of all sinners. Why? Is that because Paul was worse than Adolf Hitler or whoever you might think is the worst person in all of history? No, it's because he saw a clear view of what his sin cost the Son of God to make him right with him. When we look at Christ, we see the immensity of our sin, but we also see the wonder of a gracious and merciful and good and loving God. Did you catch the adjectives in this psalm? The way David describes him, he does not simply say, I want to talk about the goodness of the Lord. He says, I have so much more to tell you about how wonderful God is in all of his ways, in all of his character, in all of his actions. This again is David's last psalm. And of all the psalms that he's written, Charles Spurgeon, my preaching hero from the 1800s, says this must have been his favorite psalm. We don't know if this is exactly the last one that he has written, but it's the last one that is recorded in the book of Psalms as written by him. And in a way, it kind of does put a bookend to his life. And you see David writing psalms of lament and, and kingly ascension songs, psalms and, and uh, other psalms of praise like this too. But if this, is, if this were his last psalm, and it is indeed the last one that we have that is supposedly written by him, then it seems the most important thing he could do was commend the Lord through praise and testimony. That is what we are called to do, and that's what we want to focus on today as we look at this psalm. Do you remember in Mark 15, when Christ was dying on the cross, there was a military person who was there watching this whole thing. Do you remember what his rank was? Centurion, right? And how many people is a centurion in charge of? Does anybody know? right? Century, centurion, right? So this is an important guy in the Roman military. But in Mark 15, 39, after the earth has shook and Christ has breathed his last and all of creation seems to be coming undone before him, this man who probably knew very little of Jesus except for that he was a miracle worker, he was a teacher, he probably knew nothing of the idea that he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God who had come into the world to make things right between God and man. It is in that moment of the death of Christ that the centurion says, I don't know if it was in a whisper or if he shouted it, but the immensity of it is in the weight of the truth of these words, truly this was the Son of God. Because Christ died, we are led to commend him from generation to generation, from person to person, and to bring praise to his name. That is our title, and that is what we are called to do, because this is what we were created for. David, in writing this and all of his other psalms, is simply working out an expression of what he was made for. Now, you may not be made to write songs. Not all of us are. That's okay. But you are made in the image of God to bear the image of God to the rest of the world in whatever, whatever ways he has gifted you. And let me tell you today, if you wonder if you've been gifted in such a way, I can tell you that you have. Because by virtue of your being made in the image of God, you have something to say about him. And if you're in Christ, you have the right thing to say about him. And all of your life, whatever you do for a living, whatever consumes the bulk of your time throughout your week, 
is your platform to stand on and to commend Christ to the nations. To sing the praise of who he is. Well, we're going to break this psalm up into five different sections and try to move through them at a good pace. But first, in verses 1 through 7, and this seems to be probably the most impacting part of the psalm, but in verses 1 through 7, if you'll take a look at that and just you know, maybe put your finger on that section, circle it with your finger on your Bible so that you know where we are. We see David talking about a people that were made for commendation and for praise. Now again, in the beginning of this, you see David just talking in the singular. I will extol you, my God and my King. Bless your name forever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. This is David's singular declaration of who God is. But he realizes in the very terms that he sets for himself in worshiping the Lord, in singing his praise, he realizes two things that we need to catch right off the bat. First of all, this task of commending Christ to the world is too big for you to do by yourself. Because this transition goes to verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another. He says, the greatness of God is unsearchable. What does that mean? Does that mean you should give up and never even try? How many people, I wonder, and maybe you've been in this situation at least once before where you've opened up this book and said, I have no idea what he's talking about. And if it is indeed the divine word of God, I may be less inclined to read it than I ought to be. I ought to look at it and say, if this is what God has said to me, there's nothing more important than that. But I might open it up with that motivation and realize, I'm clueless, I don't get it. That's not what unsearchable means. It doesn't mean non-searchable, as in off-limits. If you joined us for Sunday school, or if you do next week, we've been talking about the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, we see the platform upon which God meets with his people. And we see all these things in the tabernacle are pointing us to who Christ is. Showing us that the ultimate way that God has met with us is in a person. He has met us at the place of our need, at the place of our weakness. As I mentioned earlier in, in praying that the Lord would draw us near to Christ, he is doing that. Christ is not absent, but his spirit is here, living in the hearts of those who know him, working wonderful things that even those in whom he lives and moves we don't even see all of those things. I, w I was struck by thinking about this just, I think it was the past week, but thinking about particularly preaching from the Psalms and, and having such a focus in this Psalm of the greatness of who God is. And you say, okay, well, if the Lord is the author, the true author of this word, and he's used David to do so, doesn't he sound egotistical? Doesn't he sound really full of himself? Who, who do you know that if you came to them and said, hey, how you been? I've been great. I am wonderful. Have you ever met me before? I am the most incredible person you've ever seen. I am so smart. I am so good looking. I am so creative and talented. I mean, would anyone ever like to spend time with that kind of person? Maybe you know those kind of people. Maybe you have to put up with them. And yet, so I've asked myself in that moment, it's just a simple question that's come up many times before, how is it that when God says, 
praise my name and commend me from generation to generation. How is it that that's any different than when, if, if I were to stand up here and say, praise my name and commend me from generation to generation? And the heart of that comes down to the question, is it true? The reason why we're so disgusted at people who are so full of themselves is because we know you're not perfect. And you might even be some of the things that you say about yourself, but I know that's not all it. And if, if I can't figure out where your flaw is, I'm just going to get more frustrated because I know it's there. But when it comes to God, the praise and commendation that we give to him is due to his name because his greatness is indeed unsearchable. It is beyond finding out. It is beyond coming to the bottom of and saying, now we know the limits of how God is so great. We know he is only this great. Do you know why heaven lasts forever? Well, first of all, because that's how God created it and because God himself is eternal. But do you know a very practical reason why we will be with him forever? It is because it will take that long to give him the praise that is due his name to commend him to one another. We won't be able to do it in a day, in a week, in a year, even in a lifetime. So David is calling us to be swept up in this praise, in this commendation, generation to generation, commending your works to another, and declaring your mighty acts. You know, this is one of the reasons why we love our children's ministry team. Because right now, while we are freed up to study God's word and be together in worship, somebody is actually taking care of your kids and helping them understand who Jesus is too. It is not babysitting. It is educating, training, and commending who God is to these little ones, and we are thankful for that. In this first section, he tells us that these generations will speak of the mighty might of your awesome deeds, declaring his greatness. And then look at verse 7. This verb, of all the verbs in this per first section, has stuck out to me the most. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Now, in this first section, David says things like extol and bless, praise, commend, declare, meditate, speak, sing. But pour forth has stood out to me all week long because I've realized in order to pour forth, in order for me to have enough water to get through this sermon and not be parched by the end of it, what needs to happen with this water bottle? It needs to be filled, right? If I come up here with an empty water bottle, you might say, what was the point? that's just going to sit there and probably make you more thirsty because you know it's empty and you can't do anything about it. I'm not free in this moment to go downstairs and fill it up. I need it to be filled now. So I would ask you today, have you come to church full and ready to pour out his praises, ready to commend him to each other? Or... Have you come empty knowing I need to be filled? And is there a right or wrong answer in these two things? 
Now, the truth is, is that there is a need for us to be filled in order to pour, pour out. So if we're not filled, if we're not ready to worship him on a Sunday morning, on a Monday morning, on a Tuesday morning, if we're not ready to live our lives extolling him and blessing him and singing his praises, then we need to do something about it. We need to fill up. This is where we find our conflict with the call of this passage. We were created to do something that because of our sin, we've been depleted of the ability to do so. We've been severely limited. So I'd ask you again, are you running on empty this morning? It was a perfect sermon illustration thing for me this morning. I got into my van. Guess how much gas I had? Probably enough to get here. Maybe enough to get home. Sarah will find out because we switch vans after church. But when I got into the van this morning and I got the kids in and I turned the key, that beautiful light came up, right? And I was like, oh, how thankful I am that I live six minutes away from work. But I cannot live very long thinking, I know there is gas in the tank, but I just don't know how much. And all indications that I can see are telling me it's not a lot. But what's our question so much? Maybe you're, you're, you're better than me at this. I hope you are. But I mean, my question is, do I have to get gas today? Can I wait till tomorrow? Does my wife need to go anywhere? Can she get gas? Instead of thinking, I'm ready to go fill up. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you get excited about going to the gas station. I don't know. If you do, you need to find some new hobbies. But um, when it comes to our being filled and ready to pour out this praise and commendation of who God is, we sometimes imagine, you know, I've got my Bible reading plan. I think I can kind of just skim it today because I really got to get to work early. Or I had to sleep in a little bit because it was really too late. Or, or, you know, maybe I'll read it in the evening, but then it comes to the evening and I go, you know, it, it's too late for any of this to matter anyway. I'm going to bed in an hour. All our excuses protect that emptiness that we have, doesn't it? We don't pour forth because we are empty. How far can we go before we have to fill up? Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2 is perhaps a familiar passage to you. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Can you do a better job than creation in declaring the goodness of God? Can you, like David, every day I will bless you, he says in verse 2, daily pour out and, and pour out and to extol and bless and praise and sing and say all those things. Joining in the heavenly chorus. Can we do better than the skies and the trees? And They can't speak, literally, and yet they're pouring out speech. Their existence is showing the glory of God. So that the Bible is true when it says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Because it is simple enough, though you may not find the revelation of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel and creation, you will find there a clear revelation that somebody made this. This is not an accident. Daily pouring out speech, and yet 
so often we say, I don't feel like it, or how much do I need to, and, and what, what's the bare minimum? How can I slide by on this whole thing? This is what you were made for. If you're trying to slide by, if you're trying to put it to the side, you're putting aside your very created purpose. That's the, one of the dangers about having, and, and this isn't going to lead into let's go to church every single day, but this is one of the dangers in our understanding of what we're doing even right now on Sunday mornings. Is this where we praise, where we extol, where we commend? Is this the limited scope that we have one day of the week? Well, it is the Lord's day, right? So it seems fair that he gets this one, his name's on it. I probably have to do everything else the rest of the week. I hope it's clear to you that what God has given you to do in your work, in your profession, in your home, all of those things, that is your platform. That is the place where you extol God, where you lift up his name, where you bless him, where you pour out the praises of who he is. Verses 8 and 9 tell us how we fill up in order to do that. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you know where this comes from? What other book of the Bible? Because this is a quotation in the book of Psalms of another book. A very important moment in Israel's history. In Exodus 34, verse 6, where Moses, one of the busiest guys of the whole Bible, who, who would ever dare to think he had time to set aside to spend time with the Lord, says to God, as he's speaking to him on the mountain, show me your, what? Glory. I want to see your face. I want to be in your presence. And God says, you I could do that. And you would turn to dust. Just by the sight of my glory. You would be overwhelmed. You wouldn't be able to contain that glory. You and your sinfulness and your limited nature right now wouldn't be able to do that. So I will pass by and leave a trail, my glory behind me. And that trail declared this very truth. The Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How is it that we can be filled in order to pour forth commendation and praise to God? Because when we see God for who he is, our fallen sense of fear is overcome by a holy fear. The holy fear of realizing he is steadfast in love. Does God bring judgment? Yes, you, you heard it at the end of this psalm, verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him. Praise God. But all the wicked he will destroy. If we continue on a trajectory of this emptiness and not embracing our created purpose of pouring out his praise and condemnation, commendation, I knew I was going to do that today. Man, okay commendation, which to commend someone is to, to praise them, right? To, to tell someone, hey, he is worthy. I commend this person to you. He is someone that you should admire, someone you should praise, someone you should love. If we don't embrace that as our purpose, then we, we have no hope of identifying ourselves in his kingdom, identifying himself, ourselves in his people. But we fall under the category of this one small part of this, ver of, of this verse 20. All the wicked he will destroy. What is wickedness in comparison to the rest of this psalm? It's not embracing what you were created to do. That's at the heart of our sinfulness. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, 
It wasn't like, oh man, they ate a fruit from a tree. Who would ever do that? That is just the pinnacle of cruelty and evilness, right? No. The problem with their sin was God said something and they didn't believe him. They didn't believe that God is good. They didn't believe that he was praiseworthy, that he is loving, that he is kind, that he's merciful, that he's gracious. They rejected those things. David reminds us here that God has made his character very clear to us. He has made his word and his actions abundantly available to us. And Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's character as it is displayed on this earth and of all his saving work at the cross. The God-man takes your place. He is treated as one who closes his mouth to the praises of God that he ought to have done. Of course, he was perfect. He was sinless. He always commended God to everyone. He, he was God himself. And yet, on the cross, the Father treated him the way you and I deserve to be treated for keeping our mouths shut, for living our lives for ourselves, for doing, thinking, and saying all things for our own purposes for rejecting the truth of who God is. And that is the ultimate crime. The ultimate crime, the ultimate definition of sin is revolving around what we have done to God, not to each other. We see how terrible sin is to each other, don't we? You see it on the news all the time. You see it in your lives. You hear it in stories. It's, it's abundantly clear that sin is bad. But why is it so bad? Because there's a good creator who loves you and made you for good things to reflect and bear his image of his goodness, and you've rejected that. Everyone has rejected that. There is no one who does righteousness. No, not one. But what is it that draws us once we've realized that truth, what is it that draws us into the praise and commendation of Christ? It is his character. It is his work. It is coming back to be filled up, not acting like I need to check in with the gas station or I simply need to fill up my water bottle, but filling up my soul with real, deep, life-changing and life-giving truth. Do you know you can be that kind of conduit? On a normal, bland, Monday morning by the water cooler, you can have water that gives eternal life. And that's what you were created to do. We get filled up by recognizing the wonderful character and work of God in Christ Jesus. There's a great book a lot of people don't like right now, which should, I just say that to commend it to you because maybe the controversy will create interest but it was given to me recently. It's called Gentle and Lowly. It's a study on the character of Christ, of his heart towards sinners and sufferers. And in it, the author, Dane Ortland says this, it is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be over-celebrated. It is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be made too much of. It is impossible for the affectionate heart of Christ to be exaggerated. Cannot be plumbed. But it is easily neglected and forgotten because we draw too little strength from it. Are you feeling weak? Are you in this category of verse 14, those who are falling? Do you feel low today? Christ has made himself lowly as well. And he has come to you in gentleness and kindness to draw you near to him that you might find strength in him in who he is and in what he's done. 
Now, when we look at this, this passage that, that talks about how all of the earth you know, receives good from him, and, and maybe this question has already come to you, how is it that he opens his hand to those who are starving, to those who are lonely, to those who are unfulfilled? When we are found in Christ, when we are made new in him, the heart cry of every Christian, even those Christians who have been persecuted and are facing persecution, even those that you might be in connection with and hear, what kind of prayer request might somebody have that has the fear that one day somebody might break into the church and start arresting people for worshiping Christ? The request they consistently have is pray that we would have more faith, that we would be more faithful to God because he's worthy of that. And they don't let their circumstances define what they were created to do. And so we fear persecution. We don't want it, and yet it might be the best thing that comes to us. We might get this whole stage done. We might get the whole front of the church done just in time for persecution to hit and shut us down. And according to what we see in the book of Acts and what we see throughout church history, it is almost as if there is no better thing that could happen. Because in that time, what Martin Luther says about persecution is the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. And in those moments where we face the pressures of this world and we say, Christ is still enough and I'm not going to give up on him, I'm not going to leave him, that is when the world looks and says, you're weird, I want to know more. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works give thanks to you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. Verses 10 through 13a. If you, in your Bibles, at the end of verse 13, you might see a bracketed section. That's a section that was later found um, by, by some uh, other manuscripts of this. We have every reason to believe that it is meant to be in this psalm. So there's just a note there if you want to study that later on. But what you see in verses 10 through 13 is the kingdom of God. All your works give thanks to you and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. This is the time right now. The kingdom of God is where? Tell me, church. Where is the kingdom of God? Don't say in heaven. Do what Joe did. That's the best answer. <laughs> Unless you have a microphone on. The kingdom of God is within you, Luke 17 says. The kingdom of God is within you. That is where it is. And so as we pray, we have perfect access to all we need to be filled up so that we can pour out. As we praise him, as we serve him, as we serve each other, as we express the love of Christ. The kingdom of God is within us. We carry it wherever we go. The tabernacle was built to be set up and then what? Torn down and to go somewhere else. And we are in much the same way. The, the, those who have been made to carry the kingdom of God everywhere we go, being an access point for people. Do you know that there might be somebody in your life that you are the only access point to Christ? They may not know any other Christians. And you might think like I do, and I'll just confess this. I so often thought I can do a little bit to show this person Christ, but you know, it might just take somebody else. That's true. But don't let that be a crutch. Don't let it be a limiting factor. Because what that can turn into is this thought that God hasn't given me enough to do what he's created me to do. You may not change every person's heart that you come into contact with. That is okay, but you can pour forth the praise and commend Christ to everyone that you know, particularly to those who do not know him. Because within us is the everlasting, glorious kingdom of God a taste of future glory. 
We carry a shocking and glorious testimony because of Christ's death. Who, what other people group starts a thought with Christ died? Someone that I know that I love, the person I love the most has died, and that is a good thing. That's shocking. That's unusual. That's strange. It's weird. And guess what? In the kingdom of God, you are meant to be weird. Because behind that weirdness, as we perceive it, is in fact the deep, mysterious, beautiful truth of God's love for you today. All your works, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that were prepared when? Once we got saved and figured something out and invented a good way to glorify him by our own means? No, the end of that verse, Ephesians 2.10 says, prepared beforehand. Okay, prepared beforehand so I can pick it up and start doing it and I gotta come up with something impressive to give to the Lord. No, prepared beforehand that we might what? Does anybody know? Walk in them walk in them. We teach children how to walk, don't we? And the Lord wants to teach us how to walk in the good works that he's prepared beforehand for us. And this dominion and endurance of this kingdom that, that is the source, the, the spirit of God that is living in us, that is enacting the truth of the kingdom in our lives, that is empowering us for it, is also keeping us They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all of his works. If we are the works of God, if we are a part of an eternal kingdom, then we're not getting out of it. John 10, 29, one of my favorite verses. Jesus tells the people listening to him, my father who has given them to me, talking about his disciples, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. John Piper, uh, a preacher in Minneapolis, has a great story about this where he preached on that verse. And then he got down from the end of the sermon and this, this lady came up and said, you know, he can't, no one can snatch us out, but we can jump out. Have you ever heard that argument before? It's interesting, and his response is the best because he doesn't, you know, expound a systematic theology of eternal security. He just simply says, if that's true, then that verse has no purpose or meaning at all. Because what does he say? The Father who has given them to me is greater than all. That includes you, Christian. You're not going to one day decide to jump ship. It's not going to happen. If it seems that that's happening, it will only show that you never knew Christ in the first place because he keeps all of his own in his eternal kingdom forever. He's the faithful Lord of providence. We see this in verses 14 through 16. These things, again, don't make sense unless we understand that when Christ comes in and changes our lives and keeps us and fills us up, everything looks different. Because he does uphold us when we are falling. He does raise us up when we are bowed down. He, his eye, our eyes look to him and we trust that he will give food in due season. He does open up his hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Everything that's living is living today because it has everything that it needs and everything that it needs it got from God. Not from themselves. And people are the worst at this because we think we've earned something. You don't earn a paycheck, church at the end of the week, at the end of two weeks, at the end of a month, whenever it is, 
you receive one because God is faithful and good to you. Because he created you in the first place. He's preserving us. He's providing for us. Throughout all of history, he has done so for his creation, for their appointed times. And we are hit by this reality that nothing we have we have earned. This is what the people of the kingdom live by. Our very essence, our very, the truth of our lives rests on his grace, his abounding grace, his, his abounding steadfast love, his faithful covenant love. Because God said he's going to save a people for his son, he can't unsave them. He will not lose them. He's not like us. The whole reason that, that okay, I'm going to be careful. I'm sorry. <laughs> Part of why we might fear that God that we might no, no longer know God, that perhaps we do, but then we may not. The, one of the reasons why we do that is because we look at ourselves and we think, I'm not able to keep everything in line in my life. And I wonder if God's able to do so. Today, I'll tell you, he is. He never fails. Nothing in creation is able to contradict the grace of God because he has made them in that context for that purpose. And Christ alone can satisfy all of our needs. That's what he's done at the cross because he died. So we commend him. So we commend him through praise. We commend him through testimony. We do this because of his great love. Look at the last section here, verses 17 through 21. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Again, if you don't know the Lord, you might not agree with that. You might wonder, is God really good? Is he truly kind? This or this in my life has shown me otherwise. But the truth of those who know him recognize he is righteous in all his ways, even when I don't understand it. He's kind in all his works. He's near to all who call on him. Oh, so anybody who calls on to the Lord, he'll be close to, right? Look at the qualifier, to all who call on him in truth. There is a required humility when you talk to the Lord. And I would warn you that as you do the right thing of looking to God's word and praying in light of it, don't assume that because he did one thing for one person, that he will do it in an exact same way in your own life. Okay? So don't take the prayer of Jabez. Is that the one that was a while back? And assume that that means that he's going to do the exact same thing for you. The truth is, in Christ, all of his promises are yes and amen, but they are yes and amen in Christ. And he is near to all who call on him in truth. And in truth... Boy, when it comes down to the truth of my life, the biggest word is need. And he fulfills those needs. He saves and preserves. He fulfills the desires of all those who fear him. By fearing him, we're saying we recognize who he is. We recognize that I can have no fulfillment, no satisfaction apart from him. And of course, he fulfills those desires. Because the desire of a believer in Christ, whether they recognize it moment by moment or not, is I need more of him in my life. And the truth of his word is that though he may not give us what we think we need in every particular temporal instance, his answer to our prayers will always include son, daughter. Maybe not that, but you can have more of me. He's faithful in that church. He preserves all who love him all the wicked he will destroy. This gives urgency to our need to testify and to commend through praise Christ to this world. Be 
Because apart from him, they are lost in wickedness, lost in separation from him. All these things that he does for us depend on verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. You know, when we uphold a promise that we've made under hard circumstances where it seems hard to do what we said we were going to do, usually if we're able to persevere in that and to actually fulfill our promise, it's because we look back and say, I did promise. I don't want to do it anymore. It seems too big. It seems too hard, but I did promise, so I need to do it, right? And when it says that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and all these things come from that, it's not as if the Lord is begrudgingly giving you the things that he's promised here. Well, I did say I would do it. But his righteousness is one that says, there will never be a doubt in my mind that I will give you what you need and everything that I've promised. I will never look at you any day. If you are my people, I will never look at you and say, I don't think they deserve it. I'm not going to give it to them. Every day he looks at us and says they don't deserve it. And I'm going to show them how great I am by giving it to them anyway. That is his grace. That is his mercy. Because he is righteous, he is near. He fulfills our desires. He hears and saves. David ends this psalm with a commitment. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. I wonder if during this time something has arisen in your soul that the Spirit is speaking to you. I know that sounds hokey, but don't let it be hokey, okay? The Spirit is speaking to you in the quietness of your heart saying, hey, remember that thing? You could commend Christ because of this. You could sing praises to him because he's done that in recent history. Ultimately, it's because Christ died, right? But there are abounding mercies and graces in our lives day by day by day. And I want to encourage you as we sing our last song to think about one of those things because I love, and don't, don't take this as a rebuke in any way, I love how y'all stick around at church for way too long, Okay? But I wonder if you might redeem that time even further because what we're doing is a good thing and the hard work of the pastor that I don't like sometimes because I like to just say, we're good at this, let's leave it alone, but I know better. The Lord wants us to move further into an even better thing. What if you stood up at the end of the service and in your conversation, don't get weird about it, like it's not about being robotic. In your conversation, you said to somebody, you know, the Lord has done this for me this past week. The Lord was kind to me through this person. The Lord met this need in whatever it was. And I want to commend him to you. If that would be the status of your heart to say, I got to do this. This is what I was made to do. I wonder if the Lord would work that into your life. And then would you embrace all the verbs in verses 1 through 7 to extol him, to bless him, to praise his name forever and ever, to commend his works one to another generation, to declare his mighty acts, to meditate on the splendor of his majesty, on his wondrous works, to speak of the might of his awesome deeds and declare his greatness, to pour forth the fame of his abundant goodness and sing aloud of his righteousness. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Father, what we have seen in your word is too big for us. It's too much for us to do on our own steam. And anyone who thinks otherwise 
the fool in themselves, Lord. Would you correct our hearts? Would you humble us? Show us our deep need for you in all things. Even in this next moment, as we lift up our voices together to thank Jesus for what he's done at the cross. Don't let us do this on empty. Lord, fill us up, even if in the last second, fill us up with your spirit, fill us up with deep, real, abiding truth of you and of your work so that we might lift our voices, not just to sing loud and annoy our neighbors, but to sing loud as an expression of how worthy you are, to give you the praise that is due your name, to plumb the depths of your unsearchable kindness and realize we will never be done with that job. Let us embrace the kingdom of God in this moment as a small taste of our never-ending joy in Christ and commendation through praise and testimony for all of time. In Jesus' name, amen.